Well, good evening, guys. <laughs> it's been a while. <laughs> Between sickness and my family, with the kids, myself, I feel like I've been missing out on being with you guys for a while, so I'm so happy to be here. And I'm going to be wrapping up tonight our series that we've been on, on what we call the meta-narrative of Scripture. This is kind of the big picture um, story of the Bible and what it says, what it's about, um, how God reveals um, his word to us. And the last couple weeks, we talked, about we talked about creation and then the fall and sin entering the world. And this week, we're going to be talking about redemption. And so before I get into the meta narrative, I want to give a definition because redemption is a word that maybe is a little bit Christianese, might, might be something you guys don't really know what that means. Um, and so in the Bible, there are seven main words that we translate in English as redeem or redemption, but they all narrow down to a few concepts, which is one, to ransom or buy back something at a price. Two, kinsman is what they say in the Bible, or relative, according to the Oriental law of kinship, um, which is to be the next of kin and as such, buy back a relative's property, marry their widow, etc. cetera. Um, this is just the familial ties in this culture that were very strong and um, had responsibility. And then three, redemption or being freed from slavery or the bondage of sin. So these are kind of the three things that it means um, when we talk about redeem or redemption. And we are going to be highlighting all of these tonight. Um, you know, it's amazing that we see so much of the meta narrative of scripture already in Genesis. I know the last couple of weeks, um, we've been in Genesis a lot. And this is where we've been, so this is where I'm going to pick up. And redemption is going to get us all the way from there, all the way through the Old Testament to Jesus, and even beyond to Revelation. And so <laughs> we're going to be going through a lot tonight, so bear with me. Um, after Adam and Eve ate the fruit that God told them not to eat, Eve said the serpent deceived her, so she ate. And then in Genesis 3.15, God is talking to the serpent, which represents Satan, and says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. They will strike at your head while you strike at their heel. And this refers to the rise of a specific offspring, being Jesus, who will ultimately destroy Satan in the end. It's the first promise of a redeemer found in scripture, of which there will be many more prophecies in the Old Testament pointing to Jesus. And what is, what is interesting about this is from the beginning, from the time that sin entered the world, God's plan was always redemption. It was always redemption. And we see this the moment that sin entered. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus our Lord. Tonight we'll be digging into how and why Jesus redeems us. He deserves our lives and our loyalty. And for those here who've, who've maybe never surrendered your life to Jesus, um, you're going to have an opportunity tonight. So I really am just praying that you all will just really take this to heart and listen um, to these words in scripture. 
This concept of redemption is kind of the crux or the pinnacle of the meta-narrative of Scripture. And like I said before, it'll take us all the way through the Bible. The word is used almost 150 times in the Bible. And so going from Genesis to Jesus, God is the Redeemer when he rescues Israel from slavery in Egypt through Moses in the book of Exodus. Throughout the Old Testament, the Israelis continue to rebel and God continues to save them. This happens in the roughly 300-year time period of the judges. It happens during the time that Israel was united as one nation under King Saul, then David, then Solomon. God again redeems his people over and over during the time of the divided kingdom when Israel splits into the northern and southern kingdoms. And finally, the sin and rebellion is so great that God's protection departs the Israelis, and the northern kingdom is captured by Assyria, and then the southern kingdom is captured by Babylon. And even then, God says he will spare a remnant. After the fall of Babylon, the Persians rule over the remnant of Judah, the southern kingdom, and the people are allowed to go back and rebuild the temple where they can offer sacrifices to atone for sin. Again, redemption. And this is the temple that still stood when Jesus came to earth. And God finally brings the ultimate redemption. Throughout all the times of the kings and exile, there were many prophets that God sent to appeal to the people to turn back to him. Many of these prophets also prophesied about Jesus, the Messiah, which in Hebrew is the word Messiah and means anointed. It's the expected king of the Davidic line, King David, who would deliver Israel. And we know now this deliverance is from sin and bondage and is not only available to the Jews, but to all people. There's about 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that Jesus has fulfilled. It's incredible. <laughs> the book of Isaiah has many of these prophecies. I'm going to read a couple of them. Isaiah 7:14 says, therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. His very name is God with us and was prophesied. Isaiah 53, four to six, says, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And I encourage you guys to read this whole chapter 53 in Isaiah at some point. Um, it's amazing how many prophecies it contains about Jesus' death. And one of the amazing things, so I'm really into apologetics, which is like the study of like defending your faith, like the defense of Christianity. And we have so much evidence, you guys, um, for the historicity of the Bible. And specifically for Isaiah, he lived between 700 and 600 BC. So this is hundreds of years before Jesus came to earth. Um, and for many, many generations, even up until some of our grandparents' generation, the most recent manuscripts we had in existence were dated after Jesus' life and death. And so there used to be an argument that, well, maybe they put these prophecies in Scripture 
after Jesus died to make it look like he was divine. But then, this is what I love about archaeology, the, something called the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in a cave in the Dead Sea in 1947 and contained fragments or complete books of all of the Old Testament books besides Esther it, and includes the entire book of Isaiah, which is incredible. It's, it's not a short book. And like I said before, Isaiah has many prophecies about Jesus. The Isaiah scroll specifically is dated between 335 to 100 BC. And so we have a copy in existence today of this book of prophecies of Jesus before he ever even walked the earth. And that just is amazing to me because it also just verified what we already had in our Bibles. It was the same as what we had hundreds of years later. Jesus, the Messiah, paid the ultimate price to redeem us and reconcile us to God. And I am going to appeal to you guys tonight that Jesus deserves your life. He deserves your life. There's many reasons for this. Um, but I'm going to look at four in particular. He deserves your life, one, because of who he is. He deserves your life because he died for you and sacrificed for you. He deserves your life because of his love and desire for you. And because, ultimately, it's what's best for you. So who is he? He deserves your life because of who he is. And I'm going to talk about a few things um, and he's a lot of things, so this does not cover all of who he is. But first, he is creator. I'm not going to go into the creation story again, since we already went into that, but I want to touch on this as his right to our life. Psalm 139, 13 to 18 says, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O oh God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I am awake, I am still with you. That just shows God's loving tender care of us and how he formed us with, with so much love and, and with a plan. Also, there are many examples in the Old and New Testament of God being the potter and us being the clay, that he molds us, he shapes us, and he has that right on our life as creator. Jesus also is king. He is king. John 18, 37, Jesus is right before he's going to be crucified. He's before Pilate, the Roman governor. And Pilate says, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. He just flat out said, he is king. Many places in the Bible, he is called King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And the reality is that Jesus is king. He is king. And Nate talks about this a lot, he, that when we choose to acknowledge that and bow down before him 
and give him the rights to our life, we're only beginning to live in reality because the reality is that he is. Um, two, Jesus deserves your life because he died for you. This is the ransom form of redemption. He bought us back. He paid the ultimate price. And, you know, as humans, <laughs> we love hero stories. I mean, we see this in our movies, in our books. I, I've, I'm an Avengers fan. I don't know about you guys. Um, but even, like, no spoilers here, but even in, like, Endgame, you know, I'm not going to mention any names in case you still haven't seen it, you know, it's been a while, but, um, but there, there are people who die for the world, you know, and in so many of these stories, there's some Christ-like character that sacrifices themselves for humanity, and, um, there's a reason for this. This speaks to a yearning in our hearts. And this is the reality, that this did happen. And this yearning in our hearts is for love and pursuit, for someone to sacrifice for us, to care enough about us, to give up themselves for our good, for significance. And Jesus has done that. Matthew 26, we're going to go here now and read quite a bit of scripture. So, um, if you guys do have your Bible, this is a good time to turn to it or pull out your phone. Um, we're going to be in Matthew 26 and 27, and we're just going to read about the death of Jesus. So first, he is brought before the high priest Caiaphas, and this is the Jews essentially putting him on trial. So his own people, the Jewish people, Matthew 26, 63 the high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes, which is a symbol of anguish and mourning, and said, he has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? What a mockery. He is their king in all reality. These are the Jewish people, and they are calling for him to be crucified because he is claiming who he says he is that he is God. He is divine. He is the son of God. Skipping ahead, Matthew 27, starting in verse 22. So the Jews essentially say that he is guilty, but they don't have the power or authority to put him to death because they are still under the Roman law. And so they have to get approval from the Roman governor to actually crucify him. And so now they're back, he's back before Pilate, the same interaction from earlier, but we're going to go into it a little bit more. This is a little later. Pilate says, what shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Skipping down to verse 26, it says, he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. 
Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. Skipping ahead again to verse 37. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. This was what he had prophesied. Come down from the cross. If you are the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the son of God. This is the death of Jesus. This is the death of the king of the world. This is atonement. Atonement is a reference to the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made in order to reconcile sinners to a holy God. Wayne Grudem, a theologian, summarizes this well when he says, the atonement is the work Christ did in his life and death to earn our salvation. Consider Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is redemption. This is the ransom. But we know that Jesus' death is not the end of the story, right? (laughs) Skipping ahead again, Matthew chapter 28. um, There's some women who were followers of Jesus that came to visit the tomb where he was buried. So we're picking up here. Um, So they get to the tomb, and there's an angel. And the angel says to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, 
who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he is risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. Revelation 1.18 says, I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys to death and Hades. He is alive, <laughs> and he has the keys of death. And, you know, death is what is said to be man's greatest fear. And it's shown that many other, if not all other phobias and fears and anxieties Really, when, you, when it stems down to it, the root is fear of death. And, and Jesus has overcome it. And I just want to share a little story um, about someone at the end of their life facing down death. Because death sounds scary. Like when I think about the end of my life and I think about death, um, it's not a happy thought, usually. But, you know, Nate, Nate comes from a very strong spiritual lineage, and his grandparents um, just were, were lovers of Jesus, and his grandmother um, just had a really strong walk with the Lord, and she was this vibrant woman in her 80s, and she was still tutoring um, to, to um, troubled youth, and just wanting to be a light in their lives. And she was still volunteering at her church. She was hosting family gatherings. And then, kind of out of nowhere, she was diagnosed with cancer. And the prognosis was not good. It was, it was uh, most likely going to be very quick, unless she went through, she, she could go through treatments. And it had the potential to pro prolong her life, even maybe a few years. And she just, prayed and sought the Lord and just really felt peace about her time. And not to say that you shouldn't treat cancer, that's not what I'm saying at all, but for her, she felt like she was okay. She was ready. She was ready to be with Jesus for eternity. And there is just such incredible hope and faith in that, that, that somebody can get to the end of their life and not have a fear of death because Jesus holds the keys and he promises eternal life if we choose him. Third, Jesus deserves your life because of his love and desire for you. John 3:16, when I was a kid, this was like the most popular verse around. I don't know what it is in your generation, maybe like turn the other cheek or judge not lest ye be judged or whatever. But when I was a kid, John 3.16 was the most popular verse. And it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And Hebrews 12.2 says, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Think about that for a second. Sorry.
His motivation is love and joy. John 3.16, love. Hebrews 12.2, joy, the joy set before him. His desire is to be with us. The last thing we see Jesus pray before, before this whole interaction that we just read about the death of Jesus, right before that, <clears throat> he's praying. He spent a lot of time in prayer. And he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he just finished praying for his disciples. And the last thing we see that he prays is in John chapter 17, starting in verse 20. He says, my prayer is not for them alone, meaning the disciples, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you have gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. I'm going to give that a second. <laughs> then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. He is thinking about you. He's literally about to die and he's seeing your face. And he's thinking about those who will believe because of, the, because of the message of the disciples. And later, um, well, through, really throughout the Gospels, and, and, and Paul talks about that we are the family of God. That Jesus, when he's talking here about unity and being one, and that we become one family. And this is the kinsman redeemer. This is God's responsibility for us to redeem us as creator and as family. That he becomes our father. And lastly, Jesus deserves your life because it is what is best for you. So when we talk about redemption, what are we redeemed from? Uh, Giovanni talked about this, actually. Exact same two things that I'm going to talk about. Um, but we're redeemed from slavery to sin. Romans 6.6 6 says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. We are all a slave to something. We think that we are free when we choose not to follow God, but we're a slave to our own selfishness, our own grasping at a happy life, um, and finding things that do not fulfill. Ultimately, we are a slave in that it is rebellion from God. But when we choose Jesus, we are literally freed. We're freed from being slaves to ourself and our selfishness, which ironically <laughs> brings true joy, and, and it brings the purpose of our, of our life. Secondly, we're redeemed from eternity without God. Luke 13, 28 to 29 
says, there will be weeping there, talking about hell. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. And, you know, when I was a kid, when I thought about the concept of hell, and especially with this verse, and I heard this uh, gnashing of teeth, I always had this picture that, like, demons were going to try to bite me. <laughs> I don't know if anybody else ever thought that. And that there was, like, this eternal, like, um, like that Satan ruled over hell and that he was going to have his, um, his way in my life after, you know. But that is not the concept of hell. Hell, hell is a, a punishment for Satan as well. It says Satan will be thrown into the lake of fire and ultimately destroyed. He is not going um, to rule. Hell is eternity without God. And the gnashing of teeth was a Greek phrase that literally meant grinding your teeth in anguish and regret. And the idea is regret. And he goes on to say, like, you will see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the prophets, but you will be thrown out. That's regret for not choosing Jesus. And I, my wish is that none of you would get to eternity and have a glimpse of your friends or people in this room being with God for eternity, and yet you're thrown out because you didn't choose Jesus. That he wants to give you that opportunity. Satan is the deceiver. Deception, the deception that sin or rebellion from God and choosing our own way is a good lifestyle, that it it will make you happy, but it will only leave you empty. Jesus came to bring abundant life, which is life filled with purpose and meaning. It is life where we are reconciled to God and experience his presence as we follow him. But following God is costly, okay? Don't deceive yourselves. It's not always easy, and he doesn't promise that we will... Um, not have suffering, that we will have an easy life. He actually promises the opposite. And so think about it. Count the cost of following God because the cost is submission. It is bowing truly before him and giving him the reins, allowing him to be the rightful king. It can cost us our plans. It can cost us living for our own will. But it is a choice I believe you will never regret. And if you do not make that choice, you will have an eternity of regret. Jesus deserves your life. I want to end with a picture of Jesus. In the beginning of the book of Revelation, now we're getting all the way to Revelation, um, John, the disciple John, is imprisoned on the island of Patmos. Interestingly, all of the other disciples died horrific deaths for the truth of the gospel. They went to death for that because they knew that it was true, that they would not have died for a lie. John is the only one who lived to a ripe old age. 
Um, some of that imprisoned, obviously. Um, he's on the island of Patmos. Nate and I actually have been to the island of Patmos. And so we had the opportunity one time to visit some Greek islands. And of course, this was like the top of our list. And that cave is there. We have been inside of the cave of Revelation where John had this vision. And um, it was pretty incredible. Like they think that there's these divots in the rock where they think is where he would pray. And he would be on literally the divots of his knees. And um, it says that he's like on his knees. And we could see like where he was probably on his knees. And then it says he turned and you can kind of turn and see, like, wow, he's having this vision of Jesus. And it's like, he was probably right there, you know? And so reading this passage in the cave just really brought it to life. But I want you guys to really, really just, if you need to close your eyes, that's, that's great. Um, but just really envision this description of Jesus. Revelation 1, 9. I, John your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, and as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Jesus is dressed in a robe. This was worn by the high priest, the robe that he was dressed in, back when we were reading about the crucifixion. It said that when he died, the temple curtain tore in half. This is not, this is not just like your living room curtains. The temple curtain was 60 feet high, 30 feet wide, and four inches thick. That's what gets me, the thickness. Never seen cloth like that. And this was symbolic that Jesus is now the high priest. Our access to God comes through him. He is the ultimate sacrifice. No more are needed. The gold sash he was wearing represents, actually, that they would wear it to work. And it represents that Jesus is still at work. <laughs> He's at work in our lives and in our world today. The hair white like snow is showing that he is ancient. He is very, very old. In the book of Daniel, he's called the Ancient of Days. He was there at creation, like we said. John 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Later it says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and goes on to talk about Jesus, which Giovanni actually shared some of that same um, part of scripture, talking about Jesus. Uh, eyes like blazing fire is refining, burning us clean, purifying us of sin. Feet like bronze means that it is built, his kingdom is built to last forever. It's not going to crumble a firm foundation. 
Voice like the sound of rushing waters is powerful and mighty and life-giving. In his right hand, he held seven stars, is symbolic that he has control of the universe. And out of his mouth, a sharp double-edged sword, the word of God. Hebrews 4.12 says, the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. We've heard a lot of scripture tonight. Um, These are the very words of God. They have power. They penetrate. His face shining like sun in all its brilliance, bright, warm, loving, joyful, like we talked about before. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then I placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever. Worship team, you can come back up. He says, I was dead, and now look, I am alive. So I ask you to look. Look at Jesus. Have you given your life to him? You know, when you have a moment of really hearing and understanding the gospel, of of hearing about redemption, it's not just the opportunity to accept something. You know, so often we can think, oh, I'm going to put that off until later. But not choosing him when he is giving you a moment to choose him is active rejection. And so it's one or the other. It's not maybe later. It's we choose Jesus and we surrender and we follow him or we rebel, we reject it. And we are choosing to not accept him. So will you choose? You know, many of you guys in here, you've already made that choice, but there may be some who haven't and that the Lord is speaking to tonight. So would you choose to give Jesus his rightful place as king? Would you bow before Jesus? I'm going to give you guys a minute to just think and pray in your seats. And then I'm going to invite anyone up who hasn't, hasn't ever given your life to Jesus to make that choice. So just take a moment. I want to give the opportunity. We call, we call this area sometimes the altar because we're coming up and just laying our life down. And, and it's a symbol of just submission to the Lord. And so I want to invite, if this is a bold move, but I think it can have real impact that if you want to give your life to the Lord, if you want to choose to follow Jesus and you haven't before, um, just to come up by yourself and just kneel, kneel at the front and take a few minutes to just be with the Lord, to pray, to confess, to invite him to be the king of your life.
going to go into our final worship song. And um, if you just want to recommit your life to the Lord, uh, I just want to invite you up as well. If maybe you have before, but have walked away or just need to surrender something in your life to the Lord, I just want to invite you um, to come up as well. As we were preparing for this night, I just felt the Lord really put on my heart Revelation 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll. But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. With that, I just want to end this night with worship. If you just need to surrender something, if there's sin in your life that you can't overcome, if there is darkness in your heart, if there's someone you're worried about, come to the altar and lay it down. God is merciful. He takes all. He will receive all. 